Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Jenny. Hi. How are you doing? Doing well. Well, we are talking to Jenny Lee, and we are now at the RISE conference. She is the managing partner of GGV Capital. I know you have been talking a lot about your story today during the conference. How did you get started in the world of venture capital? Yeah, I started 15 years ago, uh, and now I've spent the last 15 years looking at um, early stage venture capital in China, with also the market in the US. Uh, GGV Well Funded focuses both US and China, global convergence. I went from, how did I get started, right? So I have, I went from very technical background. I was with uh, ST, Singapore Technologies Aerospace in the defense sector. I started out as really technical uh, engineer and then had a chance to spend time with uh, the China market in 2001, right after the internet bubble crash. But that was also the time when China early stage technology and venture internet users were starting to take off. So since then, you know, I've been spending time in that market the last 15 years. It's been great to meet a fellow Singaporean and um, you have been on the Midas list since 2010 and you have just hit into the top 10 for 2015. So maybe tell me a little bit about GGV covers both US and China markets. What are the kind of important differences in in, when you make investments in these two regions, for example, the different founder trades, management styles and ideas? Yeah, I think that the differences are more obvious maybe 15 years ago. The US market is a very mature market. The entrepreneurs there have done startups many times, right? We see a lot of serial entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs there are very mature in terms of knowing how to work with VCs, what to expect from the terms, what to expect when companies fail, what happens when they go public. So the whole ecosystem in the US is a very mature one. The entrepreneurs, very mature. I think they know what type of investors they want, what kind of firm they want. There's a bit of a established strata in that sense in the Silicon Valley area. I think in China, the market is about 15 years in history. So it's a really young market from both an entrepreneur's perspective and also a VC perspective. So entrepreneurs 15 years ago in China has to uh, learn what a term sheet is. They have to figure out what those terms are. In China, the company law is about co it's a common share structure, whereas venture invests through a multiple common share plus preferred share structure. So even areas and terms like how do you read a term sheet? How do you look for a VC and not a banker? Right? In Chinese, they all look the same from the translation <laughs> perspective. Uh, so 15 years ago, I think the market was just starting up. There was a lot more education process. Entrepreneurs back then tend to be first-time entrepreneurs startup, and so they don't have a lot of experience. So as VC then, our job is to, to be able to work with very raw entrepreneurs, not just talk about what they're trying to build, how big they can get, but actually we have to educate them in terms of what's a board meeting, how do you conduct a board meeting. I think today the environment, right, fast forward 15 years, the environment has changed substantially. We have seen Alibaba be public, you know, it's a big one, Tencent, Baidu, and then down the down the road to some of the smaller companies. It's about 50 companies that's gone overseas and be public. So what that does is it's also promoted and educated the new entrepreneurs coming in that it is possible to kind of make it in the world of entrepreneurship. And so there's a lot more information that's out there on the web. 
information about how to deal with VCs. We're starting also to see serial entrepreneurs. So the China market is getting closer and closer to what the US market looks like, but we're not quite there yet. That's that's how. And so as a VC, when we look at both the market, we have to put that in context, right? In the US, almost every company you meet, the team looks pretty good. They are serial entrepreneurs. In China, though, we may get one or two who are serial entrepreneurs, and that's great. But a lot of times, the others may just be first time in the startup, you know, before they may be in large companies. So we have to put the right framework and kind of bar, right? You cannot you cannot evaluate them on the same bar when we look at companies both in US and China. How about management styles? I've got I've listened to some Chinese investors, and they also have some thoughts about like in China because of this fifteen years difference in the past. They actually do not have a structure for middle management, but with the emergence of BAT now, they become more and more structured, as the way you put it. Do you think that that would also ch- uh, those kind of manage- middle management level or different management structures will come in play as well? Yes, definitely. So it's organization growth and org chart question, right? So uh, definitely, I think as you have in China, as you have more entrepreneurs who have done it before, especially the founder. Then even from day one, I think the case of Xiaomi shows this, right? Very experienced entrepreneur. On day one, he has eight co-founders. His odd chart is pretty complicated, right? He has mid-level guys, top-level guys, hiring, uh, and so depending on the capability, experience level of um, the CEO and the founder, we do get different kind of makeup of the team. But definitely, you know, the odd chart is actually how do you organize?、Uh, is actually one of the first question that we would explore and kind of work with entrepreneurs. If they are young, they haven't done this before, then we actually help them kind of work through and say, okay, at this stage. How should the organization look like? Because a company in day one, it's going to look very different. Even on day thirty, right? A month later, when you have few new more, a couple more new management team members join, that that org chart can change. And so it's it is a constant, I would say, evaluation,、uh, evolution、uh, process for for the team. How about ideas now? I mean, in fifteen years ago, people talk about clones, but I think it's evolved more than that now. You have like DJI's, you know, drones, Shenzhen manufacturing. How has that evolved? I'm never advocate of、uh, for saying you know that there were dro-、uh, there were clones.、Mm. I always said that at the end of the day, any business model is great. You can if you can address user needs, and if you are addressing the same user need, whether this user is in the U.S. or China or say Singapore, then it has to come the same way. So ultimately, it's about understanding your end customer. If it's an enterprise, right? Say it's an enterprise company ABC operating in U.S., China, and Southeast Asia. Why would the product look different? It will look the same.、Uh, so if that need that you're trying to address is the same, then you you better make sure that's the right need and not <laughs> something else. So I think that's actually very important.、Uh, but then I think back to the question. I think in the last fifteen years we have seen China grow from from many areas, right? So talent,、um, the talent pool in the engineering cycle has、uh, sector has actually grown tremendously. Fifteen years ago, I was still talking to some of the state bureau, the the government about. Encouraging more people to go into the IT sector to take on engineering in schools, and then for them to come out and have a job that's in the IT sector that's not manufacturing. So there was a lot of grants, there was a lot of local policies to try and promote to get people out of factories into schools, into technical schools. I think that's that's so the talent pool in engineering IT since then has grown, coupled with the government trying to encourage returnees. Right,、mm-hmm. they're trying to get people to spend ten years, fifteen years in the U.S. working for Intel and you know Google to actually come back. And、so then you 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 kind of also really strengthen the whole talent talent pool. With talent, I think comes innovation, right? Because these are folks who have seen, who have learned, who knows what to do when when you go beyond just creating an app, 
right? If you have to do data mining, if you have to go down and create real hardware product, this requires true skill sets. So I think over as business model morph to address consumer needs in the market, we're also seeing all this multiple talent. Sometimes they come from different verticals, actually come together to form very interesting startup. Uh, and that's where once you have the right team, the right market, that's where business model now can start to get very interesting as well. Mm. Uh, so that's how I look at innovation. You do not innovate for innovation's sake. Say, don't file an IP because it's cool. <laughs> do it because you are addressing a real world issue and that you can commercialize it. R&D in the lab is only R&D. It's not going to get very far uh, unless you can actually create uh, something that is of value to the community. Mm. And you have made some very interesting investments like Ehang, UC Web, and Glue Mobile. Do you have an investment thesis? Yeah, so from a, um, a sectorial investment perspective, uh, we evolve with the market. So say uh, the year 2000, when we started in 2000, it was all about PC internet. That's like the coolest thing, right? Uh, and and for, for PC internet, uh, it's really about addressing basic need of search, basic need of commerce, basic need of communication. And that's where the BAT, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent uh, came up. Then as you go from 2005 to 2010, the needs on the on the PC internet actually starts to get more vertical. So in, in for example, travel, you now want to have travel sites that can address your needs, whether it's C-Trip or China. You want entertainment, say YY, UC Web, right? So, Again, now that the vertical starts to evolve, again with user needs, and that's where you see us deploying that capital to capture those companies as they become leading companies in their own category, right? Mm. So China, YY, I mean, these are all companies, Commerce, uh, for example, Melishua, Wish. So this again, uh, how we play the vertical. Now, when you go to, which is now, right, 2010 to 20, 2015, we are right in the mobile internet uh, sector. So in the mobile internet sector, there are two major trends that we look at. The first uh, uh, area which people talk about a lot, right? Uber of everything, <clears throat> China is the, the taxi. So in, the, in that category, it's really about the shared economy or people call it decentralization or essentially offline to online. What, what that, the driver of that sector is really about mobile disrupting traditional verticals. The fact that we all now consumer has a supercomputer, a mobile supercomputer that's with us every day, anywhere, even when you sleep, right? It's next to you and always on <laughs> means that you know, there's a, a lot of new business model that can evolve from traditional methods. In the past, you have to line up at a bank to get to open your account to transfer cash. Now with mobile, with security installed, you can actually do it with one click. So that's a big area. I, we continue to see this going into 2020. Next five years is where we see the unicorns will start to emerge. Then the second area that's also driven by mobile is more around technology convergence. Mm. Um, and I talked about this, right? which is how do you now bring sensors, technology, hardware, integrate them to form real product, real product that consumer can use. In many cases, it's, it's possible because we now have a, a, a mobile phone with us so we can see it. Mobile phone today acts as a dashboard for us to interact with those devices. But actually over time, this is going to change as well. Why do you need a phone? Right? I mean, if you can interact directly with your watch, uh, I went so far as to say if you have a chip embedded in you, well, if that's the case, then you don't even need the, the phone, right? So, so a lot of that processing will then happen into the cloud mm. and then push and basically turn on your devices for you as you need. So mm. that's another area um, where we see a lot of innovation. Thank you, Jenny. Um, so thank you for coming on the show and uh, we will definitely speak to you another time.